Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. To Mark 11. I, uh, I love reading, again, if you came in late, my name's Stephen, sometimes it's kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't know that person up front, well, my name's Stephen, and uh, have the opportunity to talk a little bit about God's Word to you in, in Mark 8. I love also, I love reading my Bible, but I also love reading stories of people who come to faith in Jesus, conversion stories. I read one recently in which a man talked about how he came to faith when he was young, and he, you know, he, he used a lot of the language we commonly use. He said, I, I, when I was younger, I wasn't living as I ought to be living. Uh, he happened to go to this youth uh, rally, and a person was speaking and preaching, and he said, as he was listening, he realized I needed to, for my life to change, and he said, uh, I, was, I really came to faith in Jesus that night, and I invited Jesus into my heart, and that has made all the difference in my life. It's made all the difference to me. And, uh, and as he talked about the changes that Jesus made in his life, I thought, wow, Jesus made a huge difference in that man's life. He really did. But then I thought, I don't think that man has it right. It wasn't that he invited Jesus into his life. I think that Jesus invited this man into Jesus' life. The life of Jesus, the life of God in him, transforming him and changing him. Jesus, he didn't invite Jesus into his life. Jesus invited him out of his life and into the life of Christ, which is something radically different. And uh, as we're talking about this passage to, uh, this morning, I think really it's a, uh, as you begin to see who Jesus is, you begin to understand why Jesus inviting you into his life makes all the difference in the world. So, if you're willing and able, in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Now, I love God's word too. That's fantastic. It's good. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to them, 
May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the people, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they came, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you, and your trespasses. This is God's word. He's given it to us because it's true, and he loves us, and he wants us to know him better. So let me pray and ask him to bless us as we look at it a little more in depth. Let's pray together. Your word is true. It never fails. It never falters. And so we pray in, uh, as we look at this passage this morning, that your word would not just be true outside of us, but your word would be true inside of us. That what you say in your word would make its way into the deep recesses of who we are and bring transformation to us. And that we would not invite you into our lives, but we would experience you inviting us into your life and into something new. Would you bless us and be with us this morning as we look to your word? And Lord, I pray for myself. I am a, I'm a poor conduit. A poor communicator of the truths of this word. And so I pray that you would be pleased to work above and beyond what I can do and to glorify yourself and to bless all who are present. Would you bless us and be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, there's a, a video prank that's made its way around uh, the web. And uh, it's in a coffee shop. And... Uh, if you didn't know what was going on, you would be really freaked out by the whole thing. So it's in a coffee shop. There's a girl at a table. There's a man against the wall at a table. He gets up to walk to the counter, and he bumps into her table, causing her coffee to splash all over her stuff. And she starts fussing at him, and he's not taking it very seriously. It's like, oh, don't worry. It's just coffee. It's going to come out. It's all right. And she stands up yelling, and she does her hand at him like this, and he goes flying up to the wall like telekinesis. He flies up to the wall, and she pushes her hand up, and he slides up the wall so his feet are off the floor, and then she does this, and he falls to the floor, and everybody in the restaurant, the, the coffee shop, is freaking out. Oh, no, oh, no, like backing away, and some people are scurrying out, and she just stands there for a moment, wondering what's happening, looking at her hands like she's done something she didn't expect, and then she flexes, and all the chairs move from around her, and she's standing there in the middle. Now, as the people in the coffee shop at this point were completely flabbergasted. They were confused. They were befuddled. They had no idea what's going on here with this woman. 
But as the viewer who knows there's a cord attached to the guy and he's got on a harness and they yank him very quickly to the wall and they lift him up on the harness and they have special effect, you know, little robotic things on the bottom of the chairs and the tables to make them move. You're watching this going, oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's really fun because you have the reality behind the reality. You know what's really going on when you watch that scene, so you have a completely different set of lenses to look at and see what's going on. Now, as we come into this passage, uh, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And uh, Mark, who's writing this, wants us to see the reality behind the reality. What's really going on here? It's not a parade. It's not to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street or whatever that old Dr. Seuss book was. But there's something else that's going on in this. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson talked a little bit about what's going on in this passage. He said, think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first, the, the Christians in Rome. He said, no doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. The Roman army seemed pretty powerful and pretty strong. But as we step into this, we're seeing the reality behind the reality. Rome was experiencing the Pax Romana with its great conquests and affluence. But the most important thing happening in the world at that moment was Jesus sitting on the back of a little donkey entering into Jerusalem. The eyes of heaven and earth are upon him. The eyes of the spiritual forces in, in, of darkness are looking at this saying, what is about to happen? because Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. So let's talk about this a little bit. Some of you have an outline on the bulletin in front of you. Scrap point two. We're going to talk about that some next week. So that happens sometimes. Okay. So first point on here, Jesus fulfills God's promise. So Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Mark 11, verses 1 and 2. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. Now, this is a unique event. Not that somebody's riding a donkey, but that Jesus is riding a donkey. And the reason is, is because there's no other record in any of the Gospels anywhere that Jesus rode a donkey anywhere, right? And so, as you read through the passage, you see that Jesus is very intentional with what he's doing here. He sends these two people to go and ask you know, to take this donkey that's tied up. There's question about whether Jesus prearranged it or whether he just had a foreknowledge of this and people just obeyed what was being said. But somehow Jesus is in, he's intentionally bringing this about because he's showing the reality behind the reality of who he is entering Jerusalem. He could have entered by foot. He entered everywhere else by foot. But he's signaling something to the people. And that signal comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this is what we read. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. So the king is coming to Jerusalem. What does it mean? Well, this is the anticipation of the Old Testament that's reaching its uh, climax here. The king is coming in. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three uh, anointed offices. There was prophet and priest and king. And the title Christ or Messiah means anointed, the anointed one. But Jesus as the Christ embodies 
all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king who's entering into Jerusalem that day. So in the minds of the Jews of Jesus' uh, day, especially he was the king. Um, and as the king, he was a religious figure in that he was anointed and sanctioned by God over the universe. But in their mind, he was the true king, the deliverer uh, of his people, the conqueror, the rescuer, the son of David who would rescue them from the oppression of Rome and all of its detrimental and destructive powers and influences. And as such, there's this deeply embedded longing in all of the Jews who are watching. They're waiting for the Messiah, the Christ to come. He was the hope of Israel. And you can hear this longing coming out when Jesus is entering in. As people are questioning, you see this in some of the other gospel accounts, they're questioning, could this be the one? Could this be the one? And so in, in verse 1110, we read the quote from Psalm 118, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, it wasn't just this one prophecy. Jesus fulfilled something like uh, 48 specific prophecies about the Messiah that appear in the Old Testament. That's specific prophecies. And then there are other individual prophecies, something like over 300. And so what he's doing here is he's showing these dangling threads from the Old Testament. These are things that have been laid in place, but they're not quite tied off. And as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, everything's being tied up and cinched tight, circled around Jesus saying, this is what was promised. This is what has been being woven the entire time. So the real behind the real is Jesus. He's not a pilgrim. He's the king entering in. So Jesus riding into Jerusalem on, on a donkey signals to the people the Old Testament is being fulfilled in front of you. That's pretty neat. But that's not all. So we step into this passage. I mean, as, as king, I was reading this and I was thinking, you know, if Jesus is really the Christ and the king, I would expect him to go to the Roman garrison that's there and call them out. I would expect maybe he would go to the palace of, of Herod and call him out and say, we're going to bounce him out on his ear. But that's not where he goes. He goes to the temple. And uh, let me give you a little background on what's going on. In the Old Testament, there's a concept that we call the Shekinah glory of God. That word Shekinah glory doesn't appear in the Old Testament that way. But the root word for Shekinah is the word dwell. So what it's referring to is God dwelling with his people in a physical manifestation that they could see. Now, the most common were light and fire and the cloud. And so when you look at the Old Testament and Moses sees the burning bush, that is the Shekinah glory of God. The bush itself is not burned up. And a voice comes to him from out of the bush. This is the Shekinah glory of God being seen in a small way. And then when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they have the pillar of fire, the column of cloud uh, that leads and guides his people, shepherds his people through the desert. That's the Shekinah glory of God, the manifestation. And then, this is, and this is relevant for what we're talking about here, in 1 Kings chapter 8-11, we read that when the temple was built by Solomon and on the day of its dedication, the Shekinah glory of God entered into the Holy of Holies, entered into the temple area, and it was such an intense presence of God that was there, his glory, that the priests could no longer do their work and everyone was driven out of the temple area because it, God was showing, I am with my people in glory. And he blessed the temple and said, my presence will rest here. Now, 
And things didn't stay that way for, for Israel because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And God finally brought judgment to them. So in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11, we read about the Shekinah glory of the Lord leaving from the altar, leaving between the, where the cherubim were overshadowed, leaving and slowly, chapter by chapter, he's leaving Jerusalem and heads west onto the Mount of Olives and then he's gone, leaving Jerusalem. The Shekinah glory presence of God has left Israel. He's gone. But that's not the final word in Ezekiel about the Shekinah glory of God. In Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 to 5, Ezekiel receives a prophecy in which the Shekinah glory of, the God, of God in the future would return to the temple, coming from the Mount of Olives. And if you look at the passage here, Jesus is coming each day from the Mount of Olives. And what's it communicating to us? The Shekinah glory of the Lord has returned to the temple in the face of Christ. And the early, I got, I got goosebumps when I said that. Um, I read this, in, we read this in John 1.14. And the word, who's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, We have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when we read about Jesus coming back into the temple, the Shekinah glory is returned. God to his people bringing with him salvation. That's pretty cool, right? It's all right here in the passage. Um, some of you are like, well, I've got to read this Ezekiel thing. It's Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 5, and then Ezekiel 8 through 11, right? It's all there. So go back and look. But there's a third thing. Uh, there's another reason that Jesus has gone to the temple that day. Jesus went to the temple because it's where the sacrifice for sin would be offered. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for our sins. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to be doing. He knew the whole time, I'm going to end up in Jerusalem, and that's where I'm going to die. He talked this, about this numerous times as you read through the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, we read this. See, we are going, he's telling his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Same chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he tells us why he's going to die. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, him, give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's an interesting word there, ransom. Uh, it's, take, it's taken from a Greek word, and uh, it means the price paid to redeem a slave or a captive, or... To pay for a crime. Now, we use that kind of language today when we talk about somebody committing a crime and owing a debt to society. Like, we have that sense. There's a debt. There's something you have to do to make up for this. That's what this word is getting at. So Jesus, as the one who gave his life as a ransom, is the one who paid our debt to take away our sin, our penalty, our punishment. He has conquered our sins by removing their ability to remove us from God's presence. Our sin can't do that anymore. Because of Jesus. If we're in Jesus, we stand in God's presence. The Bible asks the question in the Old Testament, if God kept a record of sin, who could stand? And the answer is no one. But Jesus has come so that we can stand in God's presence without fear 
because Jesus is one. He has taken our guilt and sin on himself. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. But then he's also given us his merit, his righteousness, his admission, his entry into the presence of God permanently. And so the people welcoming Jesus uh, into the Jerusalem that day, they didn't know all of these things, but they knew some of it, a little bit. And so they're, say, they're speaking beyond their mental grasp of all of this. So Psalm 118, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in the very next verse, we read this, foreshadowing what was going to, what was going to happen. This is again in Psalm 118, verse 27. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So the temple was a place of sacrifice, and that's where Jesus was headed. So the great king, the son of David, the Messiah, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to signal the king has come, the Christ has come. He went to the temple to reveal the Shekinah glory was once again entering the temple, and he, re- he came to redeem sinners and to rescue us. So this is who he is, and this is what he's planning to do as he's entering into Jerusalem on that day 2,000 years ago. And Mark is telling us all of this because he wants us to understand this is the backdrop, not just of that day. It, it's, it's the really real behind everything that we experience. We can't see what they saw, but this is still real. They, didn't, they saw these things, but they didn't understand it, but it was still real. Right? So on this day, as, as Jesus is entering in, they saw maybe a prophet, maybe a teacher on the back of a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And it's like, oh, this is good. He's here for the festival. He's here for the Passover. This is going to be really great. I can't wait to hear his teaching. They have no idea of the, the Shekinah glory is returning to the temple. They don't really grasp the full scope of Jesus as the Christ coming in. But it was the reality behind the reality. And it's the reality behind your reality. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, this is the reality. You have a savior. You have a king. The Shekinah glory of God in the face of Christ. The Bible says his Holy Spirit is now in you. So the glory of God rests upon you too as God's people. And this means that no matter what situation and circumstance you find yourself in, this is my reality. This is the reality. So, uh, let's say you're facing pressure from people to conform to something that's going on in our world. You know what you say? I know the reality behind the reality. I have a king who is willing to die for me. I have a king who is God in the flesh. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to him. Or, you're dealing with... uh, incredible emotional pressure. You're overwhelmed with life. And when that happens to me, my, my emotions take control. And what I'm called to do is to say, my emotions are not my reality. This is my reality. I have a God who loves me. I have a God who entered into the temple 2,000 years ago. I have a God who um, loved me enough to die on a cross for me so that no matter what I'm dealing with here, there is a glory that overshadows anything that I'm dealing with. This is my reality. And to speak that back to your emotions. When you're facing incredible guilt and you're not so sure that God could forgive you, 
God went to a cross for me to die for me. God the Son died for me and the Father sent him to do it. Such is God's great love for me. It wasn't my plan for Jesus to die. It was God's plan to redeem me. Or when you're facing the day of your death, when you die, this is the really real that's behind. This is what awaits you. You close your eyes, go through the, the turnstile. You close your eyes and you go through the turnstile and you enter into the presence of your Savior who loves you. That's the really real beneath all of it. Okay. So what do we do with this? What do we do with um, what we just read? Well, Jesus is inviting us away from our lives and into this life, into his life. And how do we respond to that? Well, I think uh, there are two very different responses to Jesus coming into Jerusalem that day. In chapter 11, verse 10, look at that. It says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, we receive him. But then the Jewish chief priests and the scribes, and we read this in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, have a very different response. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus is the same person. He's doing the same thing. He's coming into Jerusalem, and you have two very different responses to him, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with what's inside of the people that are there and watching. A couple of years ago, Rebecca and I had to sell our house in Clemson, and we moved elsewhere. And I can remember when you're, you're, when you're selling your house, people come and walk through, and maybe the, the real estate agent tells you what people thought. And they'll say things like this. Well, they, they saw a lot of potential. <laughs> potential. And uh, I was like, that's a cold and calculating term to refer to my house. Because when I looked at my house, I saw something different. I saw all the diapers we changed and the babies that we rocked. I saw the hiding place where my kids never found me. I saw where we watched movies in the evening. I saw where we put our Christmas tree. I saw them grow up before my eyes on these, in these halls. That's what I saw. It wasn't potential. It was beauty. It was something different. And, and as we look at Jesus... Right? It's the same. As we look at Jesus and we see something in us, not something about him necessarily. Right? I, so for the person who has experienced his grace and experienced his majesty and his glory in your life, you look at Jesus and you say, I want him more than anything in my life. But if Jesus is in the way of what you really want, then you're going to respond in much the way of the, uh, the Jewish leaders here is you're going to hate him and oppose him and want nothing to do with him so as we look at this passage, you know, there, and we see two different views of Jesus, and they're not formed by rods and cones and lenses and optic nerves and occipital lobes and all the things that go into us being able to see. It's really a matter of faith. Everybody has faith, not just Christians. Everybody has faith, and it forms the grid by which we see and view the world, everything around us and Jesus. Everything around us. And so what I think that does is the fact that everybody has some sort of faith perspective on Jesus means that uh, faith was per pervasive and we were created for it. God created us in the garden 2,000 years ago to find our orientation, the really real, why we're here, not just the activities we're doing, but why we do them. He created those things. He created us to be in relationship with him. Sin breaks that. 
but we still have to account for what's out there, what's really real, why am I here, how do I orient myself? That's part of what faith does. It helps us to orient ourselves into the world of the real. And so what I also think this passage is pushing us to is, what if we're supposed to see the world not just from a perspective, but from God as our perspective? You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to watch a 3D movie without the glasses they provide for you, the lenses. Uh, that's headache-inducing. You just can't really watch it. It's like, I've got to leave. You know, I broke my glasses. I can't, I can't hold them on. I thought about bringing in Rebecca, Rebecca say from, some from last time, but they just look like sunglasses, but they're polarized to enable you to see what's on the screen. What if God created us with lenses and like a, the lens of faith to be able to see properly? And if his word and his truth, his glory, his grace are not forming how we see the world around us, we just can't see it properly. Things that we should see, we don't see. Things that we uh, should be small in our view, view become ultra large. But he's created us to see from that perspective, from the perspective of his grace and his truth. I see him, the Shekinah glory, the grace, the love, the person of Jesus. So what do we do in response? What does this passage say that we should do with this? Well, on one level, this passage is saying you don't do anything with this. Because the whole point of this is as the true king, Jesus is stepping in to do something for us. That's the point. He has done it. He will do it. And it's all about what he's doing. So Jesus doesn't go to the garrison and say to the Roman armies, will you fight for me? No, he's coming to his people and saying, I will fight for you. I'm going to fight the battles that you could never win. I'm going to fight your giants. I'm the son of David who's going to take down the giants of sin and death and hell and Satan. I'm going to take those down, and you will never have to worry about that's what I've come to do. I will release you. I will rescue you. I'm not telling you to do anything for me. I'm coming to do something for you, and I'm inviting you into my life. Okay? But at another level, we see exactly what we're supposed to do in this passage is accept him in the fullness of who he is. And we see this reflected in verse 18. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, why did people take off their outerwear and lay it on the road? Now, in Florida, we kind of get this. We see people walking down the road with their shirts off all the time. It's just Florida. The Florida man does that. But why did they do this so long ago? And it's because of this. It's because of who Jesus is is and what he was he had come to do they didn't fully get it we get it more but what's the deal with them taking off their their outerwear their garment and doing this well this is so passe uh as an illustration but i'm going to use it and uh and because i assume if you live in the united states and you have dna you have probably seen the lord of the rings movies i'm just assuming that i don't know if it's true completely but you haven't seen it? No, we're going to have to re remedy that. Okay. So, so, you know, there are elves in it and there are dwarves. Yeah, monsters. It's crazy. So, yeah. No, no, but better, but better. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, where were we? Lord of the Rings. Okay. Find me later. I'll do my golem imitation. So there's a scene in the movie where uh, Frodo, who is the, one of the, the hobbits, the short people that are in it, and he's carrying the, the ring. And the ring represents 
basically the sin of the world. It's around his neck on a chain. And anybody who is in close proximity with this is affected by it. And so he's carrying it, and it's taking a toll on him. And he gets it all the way to where there are some people he can hand it off to. There are elves and dwarves and warriors that are there. He can hand it off, let the big people, the strong people go and deal with it. But in their presence, the ring starts exerting its power, and it has an impact on all of them. And they start acting with animosity towards each other. And so Frodo, seeing that it affects them more deeply than it affects him, says, I will take it, but I don't know where, right? So at this point, at this point, Aragorn sees this, and he comes over to where Frodo, and Aragorn's the king, he's the, he's the king, he comes over, and he takes Frodo's hand, and he says, you have my sword, that's because how he talks in the movie, you have my sword, and then Legolas the elf says, and you have my bow, and then Gimli says, and my axe, you know, he's the dwarf, so he's got the axe. That was just fun to do. And, um, <laughs> and what are they doing? They're looking at this person who is going to be the Savior. He's carrying the sin of the world to its doom and to his doom. He's not expecting to come back from this. And he's carrying it, and they're coming to him and saying, You have my sword and my bow and my axe. And in that way, they're laying their cloaks before him. Because that's really what laying your cloak was about. This happened one other time in the Old Testament. It was in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings 9 to 13. 9 13. Uh, when Jehu was anointed and announced the king who's going to go and, and remove Ahab. And at this point, all the people who are with him take off their cloaks and they set them down in front of him to say, God has anointed you the king. You're this one. So when Jesus is coming in in the triumphal entry, they're showing deference and honor, but especially it's an act of submission. We submit to your cause. We submit to your, your actions, your truth. And again, they didn't fully get it. They didn't know, like you know today, that this is the Christ. This is the Shekinah glory in the face of Christ. This is the Savior of the world who's carrying our burden in himself. He's carrying it. And so when we see this, we lay our cloaks at his feet and say, uh, you are central, and I want you to be central in everything that I am and everything that I have. I want you to have this. So what's the question? The question is, what's your sword? What's your axe? What's your bow? What does it mean? You know, those things were representative of their lives, right? What is it for you to say, I yield this to you? What you ask of me, I will follow. I will do this, right? What would it look like for you to lay something at the feet of Jesus? What would you lay? You're, maybe you, you have time. Maybe you have some know-how. Um, now, Jesus is not calling everybody to come out of retirement. <laughs> he doesn't call everybody to do that. Uh, he's not calling all of us to go to the mission field, because this is our mission field. This is where we live. Some of us he might, but this is our mission field. What would it be like in the villages? You know, you have my golf clubs, you know, whatever <laughs> it happened to be, Right? What would it mean for you to say, this thing that I do, maybe naturally, how do I bring this before King Jesus and say, how do I serve you where I am? What do I do? Me. Let me give you a picture. When Rebecca and I were up in Clemson, we had a friend. Uh, we knew the family. His, his daughter came through our ministry, and they were at our church. He was a professor at Clemson University, and uh, 
he retired. And at retirement, he was thinking, what am I supposed to do now? He was a Christian. He went to our church. He's just struggling. What do I do? What am I supposed to do? And he had a friend. And the friend worked at, a, he went to a, he volunteered at a correctional institute, a correctional facility there in town, teaching older men uh, what they needed to know to get a GED. So he taught them so they could earn their GED. And he invited our friend to go with him to teach in the prison, in the correctional facility. And so he went, and he was terrified. But it was life-changing. He said when he went in, they didn't trust him at first, but slowly he started talking. And they really started talking. And he started teaching them about history and the world. And they were, he told them things they had no idea about. And they loved that because he's, he's investing time in them. They felt loved by him. But in the course of this, they also started talking about Jesus together. And he started doing life with these men in this correctional facility. They became friends. And this had this overwhelming impact upon him. He felt grateful for this situation that he was in. And do you know why? Because he wasn't inviting Jesus into his life. Jesus was inviting him into his life, into his ministry, into doing something more with, with his skills. You have my PhD. You, know, you have my retirement. You have my know-how. You have my time. Whatever it happened to be. And so in this, Jesus is saying, I've given my life for you. Now I'm giving my life to you so that you can go out and have an impact on the lives of people around you. And it doesn't have to be anything big. It can be just small. The conversations you start, inviting somebody over for lunch or for dinner and just having small conversations with people. So what do you do? Pray. Pray for situations. Say, Lord, I don't even know where to start with this. I don't even know what I'm carrying around that I could offer to you. But I want to offer something. Look for situations. Open your eyes to the real behind the real. When you look at the world around you, when you see a beautiful sunny day, uh, sunny morning, thank God for it. When you see the rain, thank God they sent, sends the rain to water the earth. Uh, our grass needs it. Our, our crops need it. See, train yourself to see the real behind the real. Commune with God and pray with him at every moment. And then say, Lord, I offer you me today. Where would you have me serve? Who would you have me call, text, email, grab lunch, breakfast with? Uh, who at work do I need to talk to about you or just say hello to them? It's very small, but at the same time, it's huge for people. Let me pray for us. You rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. How spectacular. Someday, one day, Revelation describes you as riding on a white charger back into the world and removing all evil, all sin, all brokenness from the world. We long for that, but we are so glad that we have a day that we can look to in the past where our sins were paid and where you came back to the temple and to dwell with your people and where you uh, the king sacrificed yourself for us. Would you bless us? Would you be with us as we live our lives? Give us eyes to see the real behind the real so that we may serve you aright. Bless us and be with us, we pray in your holy name. 
Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.